You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome to Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Helderman. And each week, we're going to dive into a different piece of content, film and television. And we're going to talk with some of the biggest names in front of and behind the camera as we dive deep into how they were financed, produced, developed, marketed, and the crazy stories behind how many of them got made. Welcome back to Greenlit. Today I'm chatting with Barry Josephson. Barry is a very prolific producer, both on the independent side and also on the studio and network side. From his days of running Columbia Pictures as Columbia Pictures president, and today we'll be talking primarily about Men in Black, all the way to developing TV shows like Bones. Barry is a uh, a great, great guy, uh, very grounded comes from sort of a, a school of thought of being able to understand both sides of the business, the creative side and the business side in sort of equal parts. Uh, I've been lucky enough over the years to know Barry both professionally and uh, personally. Uh, we actually play hockey together and Barry's a, a really fun dude. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over and enjoy this conversation with Barry Josephson. Welcome back to Greenlit. Today on the show, I'm chatting with a fellow hockey colleague and friend of mine, Barry Josephson. Appreciate you taking the time, man. Absolutely. Happy to do it. So Barry's had a really interesting career, both on the studio side and the network side, and then building production companies of his own. Um, I want to start with a piece of content I think almost everyone in the world is familiar with and hear the story about how it was greenlit and how it was made. And that piece of content is Men in Black. So, Barry, tell us a little bit about Men in Black and how that process came together. Sure. Um, I had been a personal manager for many years in the entertainment industry, uh, and then I segued over into producing. I produced a lot of television. Um, I worked with Bob Bob Zemeckis and Walter Hill and Joel Silver on Tales from the Crypt. Um, I realized when I went to work with Joel and did that, that I thought, you know, I really want to stay on this side of the industry. When I left that and made that transition from producer to being a studio executive, I wound up at Columbia Pictures as a senior VP of production, which means you're the sort of low man on the totem pole trying to put together projects. Uh, nobody necessarily wants to sell to you. Um, they're all selling to the higher level executives. So I was very hungry and I was pushing very hard and looking for content and I was looking for things you know, to buy and turn around. I was looking for new ideas. I just based my entire concept of being an executive on new talent uh, because I knew none of the established talent would want to come to me. There were really terrific executives there like Amy Pascal and Teddy Z and Garrett Wigan who were senior to me. So the way Men in Black fell into my lap was because of that endeavor. Um, I had gone out to buy rights for, you know, different things. I had uh, the misfortune of making Last Action Hero, which was, you know, uh, a project that everybody was very excited about, 
it didn't turn out the way it should have. Um, I made a few movies, you know, at the beginning that were sort of handed to me, but I realized to establish my position, to establish my individuality, to grow as a studio executive the way I wanted to, I'd have to venture out and take risks. And, you know, some of those risks, like Last Action Hero, didn't work, but I think you really learn from your failures, and I don't know anybody who didn't start with some form of a failure. Um, I was given the comic for uh, Men in Black by uh, an executive, Tracy Barone, who worked for Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, who were established producers. Walter was a very established writer, and... Uh, he wrote board games and sneakers, and I really liked Walter and Laurie a lot. So when that Monday came after the weekend of reading that comic, I wanted to buy that comic. And it was Men in Black by Lowell Cunningham. I think there were maybe like four or five issues at the time. It was not a big comic. Nobody really knew about it. But I really just did see the movie there. I was always, I grew up with like genre movies, and I loved Marvel, and I loved, uh, you know, DC, and I thought, you know, this sort of like speaks to a genre audience and also it's a buddy cop movie. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, at the very worst, it's that. And I loved how inventive the comic was. I mean, there are things in the original movie that came and derived right from that original comic. So that's how it came to be. I read it. Um, I, you know, banged on a lot of doors within my building and, and optioned it. Uh, and then it was a matter of, you know, packaging it and moving it forward. So that was 1991, actually, when I optioned it. The movie didn't come out until 1997. It basically took me five and a half years to get it made. And that was really because people didn't necessarily believe in it within the building. But I never gave up on it. Neither did Walter and Laurie. And we were really fortunate that a really gifted writer, Ed Solomon, came to the project and Ed wrote it. And so walk us through that. So, so you go through, uh, yeah, I think for reference, you know, half the people listening to this are in the business of making content. Half the people listening to this are in the business of just loving content and consuming it. The five years between getting the option and getting it made seems like a really long time for, for people certainly not in the, in the business of making content. During those five years, what happens? You, you, you go through what you're referring to as packaging. You go through working with this uh, impressive writer. How does that come all together? And I'm sure there's fits and starts along that path. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it was, um, it was definitely challenging because um, you have to have a tremendous passion for the thing you believe in. When I optioned it, I thought it was the greatest thing on the planet. I really thought this will be a no-brainer. Everybody's going to get it. I'm going to send it to everybody. They're all going to understand it. 
they're going to want to do it. They're going to want to jump right in. Um, and, you know, to my surprise, people read it. They respected it. Um, not necessarily wanted to do it. Um, I will say of those directors that I showed it to, you know, I showed it to Bob Zemeckis who had done back to the future and many great movies. And it just was not the right timing for him. He was working on some other things. And I think he was sort of like moving on to want to do Forrest Gump. And so he was impossible to, to sort of like nail down. Although I tried, uh, John <laughs> Hughes, uh, who I really admire and I loved his movies. It just felt like, you know, he, he, he loved it. He gave me a lot of really good notes. I mean, that's one thing about when you get passes from people. If those people are really talented, you tend to really learn from those passes. You know, mm -hmm. later in my career as a producer, I produced the movie Enchanted for Disney and Brad Bird, you know, had, from The Incredibles and just a brilliant director, you know, wanted to potentially consider it uh, as a live action movie, moving from animation to live action. And... I think I must have talked to him for about two hours and I wrote down every single thing he said because I basically developed Enchanted with a lot of input from that unfortunate past. So sometimes you can learn a lot from the submissions. Uh, and, I, and I usually do. The one that kept really challenging me was Steven Spielberg uh, because more than anybody at the time, more than any director at the time, really thought it was like perfect for Steven to do. And I think Steven was really always intrigued by it. And he gave me a lot of great feedback and uh, he was very open to it. But I think at the time, you know, there was a part of Men in Black that really, it goes from, you know, this sci-fi movie to an action movie to a buddy cop movie, an alien movie, and yeah. a comedy um, it sort of checked off a lot of boxes and it felt, I think to him that he had checked those boxes before, but he was intrigued by the material. And the great thing about Steven is that he will always give feedback. He will tell you why he wants to do something or not. I haven't had that many interactions, but in this case, I really wanted to try again and again and again. Um, and the fortunate thing at the time was Walter and Laurie as the producers went to go work at Amblin, um, and then run Amblin, um, and then eventually DreamWorks. So Walter and Laurie, I think made that transition of having Steven come onto the project as an executive producer. Uh, that was an important linchpin because then I could go to my bosses at the time and say, Hey, um, I'm going to put together a phone call with Steven Spielberg. He believes in this material. Um, he's not going to direct it, but he will oversee it, which he did. Um, and that was an early catalyst to me being allowed to hire um, mm. a writer. Sometimes, I mean, to hire a writer. Sometimes in these buildings, when you're a studio executive, everybody thinks maybe it works in a very synchronous way. It doesn't always. There are lots of different departments that need to weigh in on a movie and its viability. You know, marketing has to weigh in, foreign sales have to weigh in, domestic has to weigh in about whether this is a movie, you know, that people are going to want to go see in a theater. Um, you know, what's the aftermarket of a movie like this? Is it family? So, you know, there's challenges, you know, inside the building to get something financed and put together. And I sort of ran the gauntlet of all of these over the years. When Stephen came on to oversee the project, that's when it became a little bit easier for me. Um, Ed was a writer that I had been tracking. 
Um, at the time, there were other executives at Columbia Pictures who liked Ed's work as well. So Ed came onto the movie, read the comics, and basically took about, you know, took several months, let's say, to go off and to just sort of make it his own. Mm -hmm. uh, he knew that it was a comedy. He knew that all of the comics couldn't encompass one story, but he sort of understood really what you know, was most important uh, in the movie. And, you know, there was also a threshold when you make a first movie like this, you have to work within a certain defined budget. So that was something else we were dealing with, you know, how much could we spend on a movie like this that had no pre-awareness, um, you know, like the way a Marvel title does or a DC title does. So uh, Ed did a great job. He turned in a fabulous script. Um, and once we had that script, then it was time to go out and find the right actors for the movie and the right filmmaker for the movie. Love it. So um, you know where my question is going to go, which is obviously this movie is such a huge uh, you know, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones piece of content. Um, how does it get there? And, and is that process easier with Spielberg now involved? Um, and the, the time frame between Spielberg coming on to that process and to actual production, what does that look like? Well, it's interesting. Um, two prominent actors passed on doing it when we first got the script. They were two actors that my boss really wanted to work with. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, or very fortunately, when they read it, they passed. Because as good as those people were, I thought um, potentially they were better people for the movie. At that time, I had already been in the process of making Bad Boys, which was a project of mine. I was actually very fortunate that I was making that movie because I was friendly with Jerry Bruckheimer and I reached out to him and his partner, Don Simpson, to see if they had any movies they wanted to make. And they, they had Bad Boys and, they, uh, and I had it in turnaround at the time from Disney. Um, and I really wanted to make a movie with Martin Lawrence. Uh, I loved his comedy um, and that's how basically that was the momentum for bad boys. And then it was a matter of, okay, who we were going to pair with Martin for that movie. Um, at the time, Will had become a very big star from Fresh Prince. And also he, you know, was not the first choice of the studio, but for me, I loved his work. And I thought this is the perfect pairing. Um, I was very fortunate that Don and Jerry felt the exact same thing. Um, as a matter of fact, I really uh, admire all of Jerry Bruckheimer's casting decisions because he, I think he always really picks so many great people for his movies. Um, you know, you look at the cast of Crimson Tide or Top Gun or Days of Thunder or, you know, just every movie Jerry's made. Um, it's just remarkable the choices he made. So once I knew that Jerry believed in Will, making that movie became easier for me. Hmm. I was watching all those dailies of that movie and I thought, Will Smith is the perfect guy to play Jay. I've been now reading Jay over and over again in the comics and the scripts, and I thought, who can pull this off? It needs somebody who is a terrific actor, can be comedic, but also, you know, can really shine in that role of an underdog. The Tommy Lee Jones element, to me, made a lot of sense because when I saw The Fugitive, I thought, this is the right guy. You know, hardened, smart, experienced, um, you know, sage, wise, um, he can play that character so well. And also enough of a curmudgeon to not necessarily want to give this Jay character the time of day. 
Um, so to me, that was the combination we had to make work. Tommy Lee Jones needed to be first. Um, he was a movie star. He was the actor that grounded and rooted that movie in its reality. So, you know, we would go meet with him. We sent him the script. And to his credit, he really did respond to it. We had a notes meeting with him, and the notes were great. Some of them were a little scary. You know, we knew we wanted to call the agency the Man in Black, and he was, and one of his first notes was, why men, why black? Why are you calling this? Why is it the agency of alien visitations and so on? And everything he said about the FBI and the CIA made total sense. But what was great about Tommy was that give and take really was great, and we were able to grow that character from those early meetings. Um, and Ed would write to those notes. Um, and then Will Smith was just magic. It was magic, lightning in a bottle to get somebody so charismatic, such a terrific actor, somebody who could be funny, and somebody who could play off Tommy really well. So a lot of what's in that movie is the charismatic nature of the two characters, how they work together. It was just so perfect, that casting. Mm. I mean, again, it was on the page. Um, but a lot of it came from the fortunate, you know, abilities of both actors to work together. Right. So you go into production, you, you get through, when did you know the movie was going to be obviously a massive hit, but I'm curious at what point during test screenings or early release projections, did you guys have a sense that this thing's going to have very serious legs? Well, one step I want to cover. Can I cover the director step before? Please, please. You want to ask me that question about how you find it? Yeah, film? for sure. So now, now Barry, you have the, the cast pieces together, um, finding the filmmaker. You've, you've got the partnership of Spielberg. You've got the support now of cast in place. How about putting together uh, the director that's going to helm the whole thing? That was the hardest part. Again, going back to what I said earlier, I couldn't find a director for this movie. And again, like, even in retrospect, I think back and I think like, why was this so challenging? But it was. Um, with Steven's advocacy, I think the picture, you know, the, the movie started to take on a sort of momentum in the industry. Um, agents would call me and talk to me about certain names. Not everybody was really right for it. And then, uh, again, like talk about the serendipity of the actors and how they came to the movie uh, I walked into a restaurant in Santa Monica, the Ivy at the Shore, and there was Barry Seinfeld having dinner um, or lunch. It was actually lunch. And Barry walked up to me and he said, you know, I'm just finishing this movie, Get Shorty. I don't know if you're familiar with all my work, but I've made some funny movies and I really like that Men in Black script you have. And I'd like to come in and have a meeting. Literally, just like that. No. Um, and so I said, yes, let's do that. And uh, Walter and I went to see Get Shorty. We saw a rough cut of the movie. Um, I really liked the Adams Family movies. And Barry's a you know, brilliant cinematographer, done many movies with the Coen brothers. So it just made a lot of sense. And you know, it was up to Stephen. Um, and he chose Barry with us. And I think it was you know, just the perfect choice because Barry really understood the tone of the movie. Um, he knew how to shoot the movie. Um, and as we went along in the process of making the movie, he was really the right director. He had a great, complete vision for the movie. Um, you know, that movie right at that time was on the cusp, same time as, you know, around Jurassic Park time, like how much CG, how much animatronic would you use? Yeah. 
And, you know, Barry was very smart about that and leaned on Stephen. Uh, and thank God Stephen was there because, you know, nobody could better give input about CG creatures, CG pieces of a movie like this. So we were very fortunate that, you know, Barry was able to have, you know, Steven Spielberg looking over his shoulder. But Barry's work was phenomenal. And, you know, for me, uh, that's why the movie turned out as well as it did. That's so funny. I mean, I, I remember being a little kid and, and this movie was, I was obsessed with Spielberg, like totally obsessed with Spielberg. And then I think seeing maybe in the credits or even maybe in the, like a DVD or a VHS you know, box that Spielberg was a, was a credited producer on it. I remember sort of connecting the dots as an early... Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Film industry memory of being like a, a child and like loving this movie and realizing that there was that sort of connection between, like you're saying, the sort of grounded uh, ability to use practical effects versus special effects and doing it so seamlessly was Spielberg involved on set? Did he, was, was he there during production? How involved did he stay during the actual principal photography portion? He was in many of our creative meetings. Um, he would visit set, but he didn't come to set because I think he rightfully so respectfully wanted to support Barry being the filmmaker and not yeah. second guess him. Um, I've seen directors and producers do that, and that's often very difficult for a filmmaker. So Stephen was not going to do that. However, the input that he gave when we were developing the movie and prepping the movie was remarkable. And even in the post of the movie, you know, uh, and how the VFX would be utilized, where money could be spent well, where it would be potentially wasteful, and he would know best. I mean, you know, you can... You know, look at movies also that Stephen has made and you realize too that he never forgets the kid inside of all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and E.T. is special for that reason. Every little thing in that movie, you know, lets you know uh, how to feel emotionally um, and besides it being spectacle. So I think that's what we wanted for Men in Black. We wanted to really understand what this opportunity meant for Jay's character, what kind of journey it was, how he would grow from it, um, and how Tommy's character would grow and retire, uh, potentially, um, uh, at the end of the movie. So Stephen acted as this really great catalyst, but he also, when I say he really oversaw the movie, he sort of unlocked it and knew what it meant on a VFX level and also on a production level, development, a true vision, you know, uh, 
for how to help Barry make the best version of the movie. Hmm. So then fast forwarding film comes out going back to my earlier question that you correctly re-guided me forward uh, comes out. It's obviously becomes a huge international smash hit. How early did you know that? Did you have a sense? Of course, I'm sure like a lot of people you say, you, you saw it from day one with the vision of how you sort of spent those five, six years building the machine. But obviously it became like a lot of big and great movies. It takes on a total life of its own and becomes something of its own force of nature. What was that like? When did you have that inkling? You know, all along the way, my dream for that movie was that it was going to be this enormous international smash. Okay. Uh, but I had no idea if it could be or would be. Um, but you cannot let go of the fact that it's going to be that. Otherwise, you can't make that movie. It's not a movie for 5 or $10 million. You know, uh, it was an expensive movie that had to do uh, box office business. And I didn't know necessarily that it would, but I always hoped that it would, and that was my dream for it. You know, that's why I took many risks along the way, including almost getting fired once because of it, to get the movie made. I didn't know it would do that. And frankly, I don't think anybody did because we took 16 minutes of the movie to New York to try to get advertisers. And I always remember Barry did a great job. He spoke ahead of it. I went there. Our head of marketing, Bob Levin, put it all together. We showed it to every major brand you can imagine. Like Bob had, I'd say there were 60 brands who saw that that, that piece of it. And, and it was really, a really good clip of the movie. Um, and basically very few people bid. I mean, practically no one. When that movie came out, we had very little behind it. We had Hamilton Watch because their watch was in the movie. We had Sprint. Um, and I can't remember if we even, I think we might have had one, um, one fast food deal, but it wasn't as significant as maybe as, as others can be. So basically we didn't have that kind of push. So basically the movie had to speak for itself. The images, the marketing materials, the, the TV spots and the trailer and the trailers that we made, I thought were terrific. And that's what propelled that movie domestic and internationally. So you really had no idea how well it would do because there was nothing behind us that would be that, that push forward. Right. One thing that was great was uh, that the movie was well-reviewed. Um, sometimes movies like that aren't, um, so you never know. Certainly I had to experience Last Action Hero being destroyed by critics and getting <laughs> destroyed so badly that it was like, don't see this movie. And I had that still in my system, okay? Um, but, you know, fortunately, other movies I worked on you know, had done well, like Bad Boys. And so I was like, okay, maybe this can get the benefit of the doubt. Maybe people understand this movie. Barry Sonnenfeld, I remember, we were both in New York for the premiere, and the movie's about to come out. And I think it was the Thursday evening before the Friday, Barry calls me, and, he, and you know, this is prior to the internet, you know, being the delivery service that we all enjoy. And he says, you need to go down to the newsstand and get the New York Times. I, we need to know the review. 
And Barry, I'm about to go to sleep. I was in a hotel. No, you got to get it. I'm out here on the Long Island, and I, I'm not going to be able to get it. You can run down there and get it. There's a there's a a, a, a play a newsstand, and it's on. He told me what street it was, what avenue. I ran down there. I got the paper. I waited. The paper got delivered. It got cut open. I took the paper upstairs, and I didn't want to read the review in transit. I was going to read it to him, and so I read him the review, which was great. And all I hear on the other end is Barry cry. <laughs> I always remember it because it's a pretty great review. So we thought we might have a chance. Maybe people will show up on Friday and enjoy the movie. So on that Friday night, I did see its play in New York and it played great. And then I had made that decision. I'd made a decision to enjoy the experience. And on my own, I just flew on my own dime, west from New York. So I think I stopped in Chicago, and I went to, I think maybe, I can't remember where I went now, but I know I made one other stop and then back to L.A. So basically in the arc of that weekend, I had seen the movie in three or four different locations. And everywhere you went, the, the audiences, it was, it was crowded and the engagement was equally as enthusiastic. It was remarkable. It was yeah. that experience I think people have, you know, when they pull off a hit, you know, uh, Broadway show, like you're there and you feel it and you sense it. It was an audience-pleasing movie right from the start. It, did, it, 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 it hit every note. It hit all the comedy beats. I got to see that. I got to experience that. And that was a very rewarding feeling because... At the end of the day, so many people contributed to this movie and gave it their all. Rick Baker, who made The Creatures, um, you know, uh, Walter and Laurie, who produced the movie, Stephen and Wolver saw the movie and produced the movie, you know, Barry, who did a great job directing it, you know, Ed, who wrote and rewrote, and other writers who came on to do polishes and so on, like Zach Penn, who did a terrific job. You know, it was pretty remarkable to think about everything that went into that movie, every actor, how good a job Rip, Rip Torn did, um, mm -hmm. you know, and little things along the way during production. Like when we tested the movie, we realized that these little coffee clutch creatures were so popular in testing that we even shot a new sequence with them um, for the end of the movie when they're leaving. And, yeah. you know, just things that, you know, we did in production, things that we learned during testing really paid off so that when I got to see the movie with an audience and see how well it played, very rewarding. I don't think there's anything more rewarding for people in my industry when they see the audience enjoy the experience. Right. Well, I want to come back to your life after Men in Black. But before I do that, you know, we did a, a bit of you know, prep for this discussion. And I've known you, you know, professionally and also athletically as we play some hockey together. But I didn't know a number of really interesting things about your background that I think contribute to the way you approach the business, the passion you bring to both sides of the business, the creative side and the, the business end of it. And I, I found some, some details about, you mentioned you know, being on the, the management side. Uh, it looks like you had some, some management background in music. Um, and had worked with Dolly Parton and spent time, um, again, I think really being sort of that balancing act between being in the business world, but also working with really 
exceptional creatives. You've obviously carried that over throughout your career and it's set you apart from a lot of folks we deal with that are very much one side or the other and very little sort of blends in that middle area. What was that, what was that background like in music? How did that translate into film and television? Um, and then I'll, I'll ask a few follow-ups to that, but I'm just so curious about the music component and, and working with people like Dolly. Uh, well, I, I ran the concert committee in my college. I was a poli-sci major at American University. That's where I graduated with the BA. And, uh, and I was very focused on going to law school. But when I, when I had the opportunity, a friend of mine, Larry Seisler, came to me uh, when I was in school and he said, you know, you know a lot about music. And at the time, I really did sort of know a lot about music and comedy. I grew up, you know, with an enormous record collection. You know, I could tell you each song that the Beatles wrote. Um, I could, you know, tell you which comedy records to listen to, why Richard Pryor was it, um, why George Carlin was it. And so, you know, my passion, you know, the thing that I loved, the thing that I, you know, consumed was comedy and music. So when I ran the concert committee for two years at AU, uh, it was a great opportunity to just sort of reach out and understand, you know, what the agents in New York and LA were selling. And, you know, I, I was fascinated with the music business, went to a lot of concerts. So when I graduated college, I decided to take a year off basically and try to work in the music industry. And I just moved out to Los Angeles, knocked on doors, got a job at a company called Landers Roberts, and they were film producers and music entrepreneurs. And I made a decision that I really wanted to work in the music industry. Um, so from that job, I got a job in post-production music at a company called Lorimar. That was a very big television company. They made some film, but mostly television. So I did post-production for them. And then I was really desiring to get out on my own. And I worked on a show um, with the creator of The Waltons and the creator of uh, Falcon's Crest. Um, Burl Hamner. And uh, so I got a job working for Earl Hamner, who created Falcon's Crest and the Waltons. And one night when I was putting some sessions together for a show he did for NBC called Boone, which was basically uh, a version of telling Elvis, um, you know, in Memphis. Uh, and it, it was a fictional character, but it was sort of loosely based on the Elvis life. And he said to me one night, you're so good at this. You know, do you ever think about working with talent? And I was sort of like had run this sort of circuit of that job and that suggestion weighed on me. And I thought, you know what, that is the right thing to do. I'm going to go pursue all the big talent managers and see if I can get a job doing that. Cause I know about this industry. So I went to Ken Cragen and I went to, uh, you know, I knocked on every door. Elliot Roberts was probably the manager that I admired the most because of all his great clients and timeout. Murray, I need to finish my meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll look for them after I'm finished talking. Okay. I love you. We can close the door. Thank you. All the way. I love you. I love you too. Five-year-old. Very nice. That's very uh, nice. I'll see if I can join those things together. So to make a long story short, I, um, I went from, uh, knocking on those doors to be a manager. And I did get a job at Cat's Gallon and they represented a lot of sort of like more um, variety show kind of talent. They had, um, you know, 
Joan Rivers at the time. They had a lot of comedians. Um, and I went there saying, look, I'll try to make your business more contemporary. And in the time that I was there, we signed Patti LaBelle, the Pointer Sisters, Whoopi Goldberg, um, Dolly, Clark, Dolly Parton had been a lifelong, you know, a client of Sandy Gallon's. But Sandy gave me a lot of leeway. He'd let me sort of work with his clients, like America and Mac Davis, but he let me sign up and coming people. Um, right before I left, we had, you know, signed Paula Abdul to her first contract. Um, so basically, over that period of time, I had a chance to work with some great contemporary artists, music artists. And Dolly, although she wasn't my client, I did get to work on some projects with her. Um, and she was a great influence because I admired her work so much. I love Code of Many Colors. I love Jolene. I love every song she ever wrote. I got a chance to watch her perform live, um, be backstage, talk to her. You know, those experiences really helped form me. And when you work with somebody, you know, like Dolly or like Whoopi, who's so gifted, so talented and has, you know, they have a vision for their work and their career. It, it is, and a, and a complete passion for it too. For me, it was, it was a great opportunity. I then realized I wanted to segue from being a manager to producing because Whoopi was really kind and she allowed me and so did Mike Nichols to work on her Broadway album. Uh, and then uh, after that, I had the opportunity to produce HBO specials um, for all of my comedy clients, Paul Rodriguez, Bobcat Goldthwait, Whoopi, Rick Dukeman. Um, and that experience of working, you know, on productions was really satisfying my curiosity about wanting to be a filmmaker, potentially wanting to be a producer, potentially didn't really have a vision for being a studio executive. That's something that came a little bit later. Yeah. But at that time, that was a great crossover for me. And those clients allowed me that ability because they believed in me enough to oversee those productions. And there was one producer, Tony Eaton, who I learned a lot from about how to produce that sort of like concert event type of show, whether it be music or comedy. Got it. It's great. It's great, Barry. Bringing it now sort of full circle back to you being president of Columbia Pictures and sort of rising to ultimately the sort of pinnacle of the studio world. How does that coincide with Men in Black? How does your life look after Men in Black? And then also segueing out to sort of starting a, a company of your own again and hitting, hitting sort of another reinvention button. You know, I never went to Columbia Pictures wanting to be president or chairman of a studio. Um, basically, every two years of my six-year tenure, I wanted to leave. and <laughs> People wanted to hire me. Um, I just always wanted to be a producer. Um, but it was really interesting. You know, you are um, sort of, for better or for worse, saddled with the things that you make. Um, and you get a pat on the back occasionally when you make something good. Yeah. So in that time period, I made, um, after stumbling, I made Bad Boys and Air Force One, In the Line of Fire, Men in Black, um, you know, I supervised or oversaw about 65 movies and in that period of time, you know, had a lot of success. So every time I tried to quit, I would get a promotion. So it'd be like, no, stay another year, stay another two years. And I, no, you know, I think it's time for my production deal. <laughs> um, 
but I kept being promoted. And I can't say I really ever enjoyed that much going to all the meetings that we had. Um, but I did like working inside that system and I did like being a buyer and I did like the movies that we made quite a bit. But by the time, you know, 1997 came along, it seemed like that was time for me to go out and produce. I really admired some of the producers I worked with. You know, like I said, the experience with Spielberg was amazing. The experience with Jerry Bruckheimer was amazing. You know, I worked with Erwin with Winkler on a movie he directed um, called The Net, which was successful for us. But, I, you know, Erwin's such a, a brilliant producer. I really admired all the movies he made, Goodfellas, and how he kept these, you know, a, a Rocky, all these movies that he made, how he put them together. I was enamored with that. That's what I wanted to do. So, you know, after my time at the studio, it seemed to me run its course. That's when I went back out there to produce. And I've always been happy being a producer. I love taking, you know, material from its origin onto those next steps. I know we're coming up on time here and I have just two questions. I think they're very different from one another, but the first is you've also had a great career ability jumping back and forth between film and television. And I think that some of the background and backstory you give on music being an informing formative part of your, your upbringing and sort of loving of the, of, of content and the arts and working with creatives. I can see it now more so than I probably did even before this, this chat what do you what do you sort of think about now uh, in the in the position you sit today? How do you split your time between film and TV? Um, where do you sort of see the business evolving, and how does that sort of influence the way you're making decisions on your own producing efforts? You know, I'm thrilled about where the business is going because streaming has opened up so much content for us. And you know, when I remember like finding, you know, uh, the book for Bones. And, you know, terrific agent, um, Lauren Whitney, sent me this book. And I was fascinated by the author. I was fascinated by her work and her life. And so I wanted to see that on television. So, you know, I did everything I could to try and develop that and see that come to fruition. The character that, you know, that Kathy Wright's created in the books was inspiring. You know, it was somebody who was well-intentioned and had great talents and a gifts and an instinct. Um, you know, when I read the book for Turn, Washington Spies, you know, again, too, I was like, you know, passionately motivated by the story and also the culpering story of the spies for Washington had not been told. So I look at it now and I think you could take so many different forms of stories and either convert it into a movie or a network television show or a streaming television show or a cable television show. And I'm inspired by watching the people around me create all of this great television and all of this great, um, you know, content for films. I don't think that you need to make a choice one way or the other. I never felt that. Even when I left the studio, I was ambitious to make television as much as I was going to make film. Because for me, what's the difference what screen somebody's watching it on? And now that has sort of come together as almost people really preferring this experience. However, there's always going to be movies that people want to go see in a theater. I really am inspired by what I'm seeing now, whether it's short form, whether it's documentary, whether it's four episodes, six episodes, 15 seasons, you know, if the story can carry you, if the characters intrigue you, you know, 
I think I've watched Breaking Bad start to finish twice. You know, I think I've done the same with Sopranos. I, you know, just, you know, you know, there are shows that I love like Schitt's Creek or Unorthodox or, you know, just, you know, there's, you're not going to run out of content right now. And that's a great thing. And the delivery systems, you know, uh, allow you to do that. So for me, I've always inspired, been inspired by characters, character dilemma, you know, the, the notion of like getting invested in something and almost everything that I watch and admire, that's what it, that's what happens is that you get invested in a character's dilemma and you'll continue on with it, whether it's, you know, Westworld or it's men in black or it's Jurassic park. You just want to be with those people or you want to experience that slice of life. So I think right now it's sort of like the golden era of, television of streaming of, you know of film as well and i think post covid the the theatrical experience will come back but there's still something so exciting about sitting in a theater and experiencing a movie um that way sure i appreciate it barry i think i, I always end with a with a variation on this question which is looking back to the beginning of your story and looking to where you sit now what would you tell yourself from the seat you're in today versus the shoes you were in back then starting off early, early days, maybe all the way back to being a a concert organizer and and hustling your way uh, in through the music business? Um, You know, the thing I would say that I think can be sage for others um, is to hook yourself to talent or be inspired enough to be that talent. If you want to write a book, write the book. If you want to write a screenplay, write that screenplay. If you are inspired by others, you know, then try to make a movie with the Safdie brothers. Try to make a movie with Ava DuVernay. Try to, you know, find a way towards talent. Uh, That, I think, is the basic principle that you want to adhere to. You know, I watched Susan Moreau on Showtime, and... I want to work with those guys. I, you know, watched Will Smith and I want to work with him, you know? Um, so I think for me, that is sort of like the defining principle, either be talent or find the talent to be passionate about. It's awesome. I appreciate you carving out the time. I think we're, uh, we're at the end here, but appreciate the, the sit down, man. All right, brother. I look forward to playing hockey. It's going to come out pretty soon. I know. I think we're all itching for it. Have a good rest of your afternoon, man. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thanks, Ben. We'll talk soon. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. For financing questions, feel free to contact us at Bondit Media Capital at info at bondit.us. For production, development, and distribution questions, feel free to contact us at Buffalo 8, info at buffalo8.com. We'd love to hear from you and hope you'll continue listening to the podcast episodes ahead. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.